Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Can Native women make a difference in the bottom line for your retirement account or your tribe's financial well-being? There's some research that suggests women bring sound decision-making skills and attention to detail that return dividends. Either way, industry leaders say it's important to recruit and retain women in a field that is dominated by men, especially at the leadership level. We'll talk with some Native women investment professionals about special skills they offer and the unique hurdles they face. That's all right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Another indigenous human rights defender has been killed in Honduras. The activist body was found last week in a river located in a region his community had succeeded in gaining back from land grabbers. Maria Martin reports. Martin Morales Martinez was the leader of the Garifuna community of Triunfo de la Cruz in northern Honduras. The activist was a member of a committee in charge of implementing a property agreement in favor of his community that came as a result of a ruling by the International Court of Human Rights. Morales had been receiving death threats for several months and had asked for government protection. At least four other human rights defenders in the area have been killed or disappeared this year alone. Human rights organizations say the Garifona community of Triunfo de la Cruz has been the victim of reprisals and violence since they began an effort to reclaim their ancestral lands. Honduras is the fifth most dangerous country worldwide for indigenous environmental and land defenders. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. The University of Montana has hired a new coordinator to lead efforts to return indigenous remains held at the college back to tribal custody. Montana Public Radio's John Hooks has more. Courtney Little Axe began working on the repatriation of indigenous remains and artifacts held at the University of Montana as an intern in the anthropology department in 2015. This spring, she returned to her alma mater as the first official coordinator of the university's efforts. Watching it grow from, you know, 2015 to now, it's pretty powerful and it's pretty meaningful for me to be able to fill this position. Little Axe is Northern Cheyenne, Absentee Shawnee, and Seminole, and grew up on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in southeastern Montana. She has degrees from UM and Haskell Indian Nations University. Little Axe said it is crucial to have indigenous people leading the effort to return their cultural artifacts. Because if you don't understand where these items come into play in, in, a, in a certain culture, then I don't think you'll understand the significance or the importance of why we need to get them back. A database of indigenous remains created by ProPublica shows UM has made the remains of 42 indigenous people available to return to tribes while at least 25 are still being studied to determine a tribal identity before they can be returned. A law passed in 1990 requires federally funded institutions like UM to endeavor to return indigenous remains and other artifacts to their tribes. So far, the university has struggled to comply with the law without a dedicated coordinator. 
For National Native News, I'm John Hooks. The New Mexico Court of Appeals has ruled Albuquerque Public Schools, or APS, must follow state anti-discrimination laws. The ruling revives an anti-discrimination lawsuit involving an incident at an Albuquerque high school in 2018, where a teacher is accused of cutting a Native student's hair and calling another student a bloody Indian on Halloween in the classroom. The American Civil Liberties Union lawsuit accuses APS and the former teacher of creating a hostile learning environment and discriminating against Native Native American students. It also alleges APS failed to properly train teachers on the harms of racism and to provide for its student safety. The incident sparked outrage from the Native community. Students, family members, and grassroots groups held protests at school board meetings. The appeals court overrules a 2021 district court decision. The lawsuit has been returned to district court for a hearing on the merits of the case. Albuquerque Public Schools is said to be considering an appeal. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by StrongHearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. Support by Vision Maker Media, currently seeking two digital media specialists and a director of project productions and services. Information on required qualifications and how to apply at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Whether it's brokering a stock trade, choosing the right asset mix in a retirement portfolio, or helping a nervous client weather a bear market, women are underrepresented in the investment services industry, especially in senior level positions. That's a bit ironic considering a 2021 study by Fidelity, a multinational financial services corporation, which revealed women outperform men as investors with higher average rates of return. Women today are also accumulating more assets than previous generations, a key to building wealth. Today, we'll talk with Native women working in the financial and investment services industry. We'll hear about what drew them to the field and challenges they face as both women and people of color. Please join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line in Everett, Washington is Leilani Wilson-Wakash. She is both Chief Compliance Officer and Managing Partner with Breakwater Investment Group, LLC. She is Tlingit. Leilani, thanks for joining us. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Speaking with us from California is Elka Shenovi. She is a partner and financial advisor for FS Advisors Incorporated, and she's worked in the financial services business for nearly 40 years. She's a member of the Omaha Tribe of Nebraska. Elka, welcome to you, too. Good morning. Thank you, Sean. Great to be here. And joining us from Anchorage, Alaska is Brandy Nikolai. She's the Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Strategies at Alaska Permanent Capital Management, and she's a descendant of the Chalista region and a Doyon shareholder. Brandy, great to have you on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. 
let's go ahead and start this conversation. And Leilani, I'd like to begin with you. And uh, this is fascinating, this whole idea of women. And there's almost, uh, we've almost framed it like a little bit of a competition here between men and women and, and how they manage money and how they provide investment services. So I always want to ask you straight up, do women approach finance differently than men? I think so. I think women have a long-term perspective and a broader approach um, when we're, as women and caretakers of families, we are looking at a lot of different facets and um, incorporating those in. Not that men don't do that, uh, but I think there's just a different approach of how women look at money, need to use it for today, but also are looking to the future and having that protection for themselves. Am I stereotyping if I say perhaps a, a maternalistic nature is what maybe guides a woman's approach to, to managing money and, and finance? No, I, I think that's accurate. In fact, I remember years ago a, a Native Hawaiian mentor to me um, shared a, a, a thought that men are external with their organs and women are internal with our organs, and that's just or, you know, science and, and nature. And so women have an internal view and want to feel good about the things that they're doing and the things that they're accomplishing. And men generally have an external and, and care about how the performance, right? And um, you hear it. There is a stereotype about men talking about their performance of the, the stock market, how they did, they're buying and selling because they're reacting and want to... Uh, sometimes tell a story that that they're being successful versus the woman just wants to have that internal feeling and comfort. And so there's there's different mentalities, uh, just biologically and and historically, of how women and men view uh, investing and finances. Leilani, in the intro, we mentioned research that indicates women outperform men when comparing investment returns. Do you agree with those findings? Yeah, in fact, I had—I actually had that uh, statistic I was going to share today, so I was really <laughs> pleased that you already shared it. And I think part of the reason why women uh, outperform, even though they may not have the confidence or feel like they have the knowledge, is a big part of being successful in vet, investing is patience. And I think that's where women have an advantage just naturally is, is patience. Leilani, what got you into the financial services industry? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I, I always love to share this story. So when I was, and you've probably heard it before, but when I was a teenager and I was born and raised in Alaska, grew up there in a remote community and had the opportunity to go away at college um, at Purdue University, I was looking at all different types of industries, healthcare, agriculture, business, sovereignty, medical, education, all of those important facets of our, of our communities. And what I realized at a very young age as a teenager was that all of our problems are really um, driven by a lack of resources, and specifically financial resources. So whatever area you're looking at, there's a need for more financial resources. So being ambitious then, as I am today, I decided I wanted to be at the center of all of what I thought was the problems and, and um, holding our communities back, and that was the financial aspect. So I decided to jump in and focus on a degree in financial planning and counseling and um, 
and work in, in the money side, the financial side, and, and I've never looked back, and, and I'm so glad that I did, and, and that insight came to me when I was just a young teenager. And now here you are, managing partner with Breakwater Investment Group. What types of clients do you mostly serve? Most of our clients are, almost all of our clients are tribal communities, and so we love working with tribal communities. I get to do what I started out doing as, as a young college student, and uh, we work with um, different trust funds, retirement plans, individual accounts, and a lot of what we do is, is based on the how to manage the portfolios, but actually what I love more and, and focus my specific work in, in the team is on the governance side, making sure they're making good decisions, understand the process, options, because as sovereign institutions, they have the right to do what they want. So we're constantly giving options and walking them through and helping them make the best decisions that are, are for their community. It may not be the same for another community. Leilani, as a Native woman, what do you offer your clients that other investment advisors can't? Well, I think I bring some patience to the table. It takes a long time, um, a lot of work on, on the financial literacy, the financial governance, uh, that aspect of really talking through and, and listening. I have to listen so much to my clients and what are they trying to do and then bring them recommendations. So it's not just hey, this is the best uh, investment manager, this is the best allocation that you should do. It's much more beyond um, and, and just having that, that comfort, understanding. And we've had clients for uh, 10, 20 years almost, and, and so I think they value that um, honesty and that calmness and, and um, just the, the real collaboration because that's what it takes to be successful is to have that, that collaboration with your clients and really get them the, the um, solutions that works for them. It's interesting to hear your philosophy, Leilani, because I think there's a, a stigma, especially with regard to the investment industry, that it's just a lot of people out to make a buck and uh, very ambitious, very aggressive, very assertive. But the way you describe it, uh, the way you work with tribal communities, it's about more than the money for you. Oh, absolutely. And, and there is a lot of people in the financial industry out to make a lot of money, and you certainly can. And, um, and our goal is to help our communities, our clients, uh, build their own wealth. And certainly we receive a fee off of that, but we as fiduciaries have to make sure that um, we're putting their best interests first and, and that whatever compensation we receive is, is uh, fair and um, we've earned that compensation. And do the tribes that you work with, do they actively seek you out or do you go to them first? How do you make that initial connection? Yeah, that's a great question. So most of our clients, uh, they're referred to us from, from other professional service providers. And so that's great. We, we um, are able to meet some uh, tribes around at different conferences and make a connection. But a lot of them are referred. And, and we like to say we're the specialist with, with the problem childs. And, and so we, we take complicated situations and, and figure out how to sort it out and help them get back on a good path. Because over the time that uh, our communities, our, our tribes are managing money, different things happen. Uh, councils change, staff changes, and so issues come up. And that's normal, but 
uh, we just are diligent in finding solutions and helping them get back on track. One thing I find fascinating with tribes is that I know they have a lot of unique financial needs, right? Like assets and land held in trust and interesting tax situations and things like that. And do you think uh, as a native investment advisor and as a woman, you're uniquely qualified to deal with some of those challenges facing tribes? Oh, absolutely. When I graduated from college, I opted not to go directly into the financial industry. And instead, I went back home and had an opportunity to work with one of my native corporations, the Alaska. And so I wanted to have that internal perspective. And so I spent over four years with them learning how and the, they work, how they make decisions. And so that inside knowledge has really helped me all these years to have that perspective of the limitations of the staff, the limitations of, of, of the leadership who are elected, and to really help and provide the expertise and, and the professional support that they require. Leilani Wilson-Wakash, she is a Chief Compliance Officer and Managing Partner with Breakwater Investment Group. She's up in Everett, Washington, and she's sharing a little bit about the work she does today. She's telling us about her background, what drew her to the field of investment services. And we've got other guests on the show as well. Elka Shinovi in California, who's been in the financial services business for more than 40 years. And Brandy Nikolai up in Anchorage, Alaska as well. So we're going to talk with our other guests. We're going to talk more with Leilani. Anyone listening has a question, even just maybe a question regarding investments or a question about finance. We've got people on the show today who can answer questions like that. So what are you waiting for? 1-800-996-2848. That's our number here at Native America Calling. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Sean Spruce, host of Native America Calling. You can listen in every weekday to hear the only national call-in show from a Native American perspective. We explore topics that range from traditional cultural practices to up-to-the-minute news that affects every American. We hope you can join us for the next Native America Calling. Calling all warriors, it's time for self-care. Father, uncle, grandfather, son, and nephew all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. Use this checklist to keep track of preventive health service you need. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash checklist. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Whether you're a longtime listener or new to the show, thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. We're talking with Native women working in finance today, and we welcome your questions. Do you have an interest in investing? Stocks, bonds, mutual funds, maybe even Bitcoin. If so, give us a call, share your insights. Or if you hired a financial advisor, would you have a preference for whether a man or a woman manages your hard-earned money? Give us a call. Tell us what you think. 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our next guest, Elka Shinovi, is joining us from California. Elka, 40 years in the financial services business. I'll bet you've seen a lot of changes over the past four decades. That is certainly true. 
and good and all for the better. All for the better, huh? I'm glad to hear that. Elka, your firm is Native Woman-Owned. Is that a feature your clients actively seek out? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, Nancy Lowry, who founded FS Advisors, she was um, really forward-thinking, um, wanting to create solutions for uh, Native communities, tribes, and um, I think that is definitely appreciated um, by our clients and, and and folks that we're talking to. Now, do you work mostly with tribes and other institutional investors, or do you work with individuals too? So SS Advisors works primarily with tribes. We do have some individual investors, um, and I, I certainly work with some individual investors, but our focus is um, working with uh, tribal nations and their enterprises. Elka, going back uh, to the early days when you first got started in this industry, tell us a little bit about your career path and, and what was it like that back in the 80s when you first started doing this work? So it was um, definitely a male-dominated uh, business. Um, and coming out of college, uh, then going to business school, which was predominantly male as well, uh, and then going to work on Wall Street, um, Definitely did not have a lot of women role models, but um, fortunately, I was I was able to find my path and um, have really enjoyed um, and been so grateful for the career that I've been able to to follow. Now, is it true back in the day uh, on the exchange floors there wasn't a women's bathroom available? So it's actually not on the exchange, but um, that comes uh, from. The first uh, building that I ever worked in on Wall Street as a summer associate between years at business school, and we were located uh, on the top floor, and which had um, been the former offices of a very uh, traditional uh, old school investment bank. And yes, they had uh, the women had to go down to the lower floor to use the bathroom. <laughs> oh my gosh! How many stories was that? <laughs> Uh, that building was uh, over 40 stories. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Right down That's there on Wall Street. <laughs> well, I mean, how did that make you feel? Just have, I mean, just that alone must have been, that must have been humiliating in some regard. Well, I think, you know, yes. I mean, it, it was definitely one of those things that you took in and sort of went, wow. <laughs> And uh, but I want to be here, and so I'm going to keep fighting and do what it takes to um, to pursue this career, because like Leilani, um, my first exposure to finance was um, I worked as a, a summer intern for the Native American Rights Fund in college, and that summer. Um, working in the D.C. office, uh, a lot of our work was around legislative advocacy for tribes, and I was just uh, kind of taken aback by all the effort that went into for tribes to get funding from the federal government and realizing how precarious the situation that was for really important projects. And so that really piqued my interest in, well, how can tribes get their own funding? Um, so that was what uh, interested me in finance and then um, why I pursued the career that I did. And, you know, I was going to make sure that I, I gained that knowledge um, 
even if it meant having to, to work in buildings <laughs> where I'd have to go to the lower floor of the bathroom. <laughs> Elka, another thing I find so fascinating about your career is that it, it really kind of coincides the rise of economic power amongst tribes. And I'm thinking just of the enormous amount of wealth and economic development that some tribal communities have enjoyed over the last four decades. And you've been right there at the forefront of that. Well, it's really provided me a really interesting perspective. Um, that is for sure. You know, early on in my career, I went into investment banking because that was where state and local governments, corporations go to raise money and so for projects. And so I wanted to learn that to be able to bring that knowledge back to tribes. And so that was... Um, you know, kind of uh, pre-gaming, of course, at that time. Um, and tribes, for the most part, really um, only had natural resources as, as uh, sources of funding. And so if you weren't a natural resource tribe, you really had um, very limited resources. You know, I think that speaks to a point Leilani made earlier as well. Um, but once uh, tribes did um, start to have access to the capital markets where they could pursue economic development projects and as revenues have grown, that huge growth that you mentioned, Sean, that's um, now at that time, uh, it was in 2003 that I actually made the change from working in the capital markets area to going into investment management. Uh, because now there's, of course, tribes have the opportunity to manage the wealth and the and the revenues that they do have uh, for for future uses and and establishing permanent funding for the things that they that are truly important. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, Elka, and how your tra career has transitioned. Because I think oftentimes when we think of of the investment industry, we kind of have this idea of like this boiler room environment where everybody's just stressed out on computers and making all these fast trades and it's just like super, super high energy. I, I, it doesn't sound though that like that's probably all that accurate. Can you describe what a typical work day looks like for you? Yeah. So, you know, I'm really fortunate that now um, with FS Advisors, I'm able to work in many areas of finance. And I think that's one thing for young people thinking about this area um, for career opportunities is to understand that the, the field of finance is vast and there are so many different career opportunities, whether you're talking about um, raising capital for projects or doing the investment management piece, you know, even within the investment management area, you can work with institutions, large organizations like tribes, or you can work with individuals. And then there's the whole financial management piece, which, you know, you could be managing um, outside revenues, you could be managing grant revenues, and that's such an important area because that's how um, there's really, that's how the accountability is tracked in finance. And so I'm very fortunate. Um, FS Advisors works with tribes in the areas of investment management, um, financing. Uh, we do tribal administration consulting, so grant management, um, financial management. Um, and then our tribal member benefits group. 
So a typical day for me is I, I get to work across all those areas, um, really coming up with the uh, the best solutions for tribes, and I think um, so. If you're if you like problem solving, that is uh, it's a great career for you because you have that opportunity to look at complex problems, um, come up with solutions, and you know let's face it. I mean, finance touches everything. So if you're you know, passionate about um, a nonprofit mission, well, that nonprofit likely needs help uh, raising funding, managing its funding so it can be self-sustaining. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's uh, one of the, I'm, I'm very grateful, no day is ever the same. Um, it's not sitting in front of a computer all day. Uh, it's really, um, talking to people, understanding what their goals are, and then putting together a, a strategic plan to help them reach those goals. And, um, you know, back to your point of, um, earlier, the, the discussion you had with Leilani about what do women bring to finance? I mean, you know, at a very basic level, we're, women are always thinking about the children. So yes, we have that long-term perspective. And then on a day-to-day -day basis, we're thinking about caring and feeding. And that's exactly you know, the approach that you need to take to finance as well. Um, and so I think that um, those skills are, are, are very much um, important to the success of women in finance and, and um, why I feel it's women are, are very well suited to this area. And I certainly hope that um, some of the listeners out there, the young women are, are thinking about looking at this area seriously. I like the way you and Leilani both describe that and in, in that analogy with, with feeding people. And Elka, another piece of the whole investing puzzle is risk management. And I know that there's research that shows male investors are, are prone to taking on too much risk at times. So I ask you, what do you teach your clients about risk? Well, I think it's very important, especially for an organization um, like a tribe or a nonprofit to have conversations around what level of risk are we comfortable with. So, um, you know, uh, when you're dealing with individual investors, you know, it's a little bit easier because there's one decision maker. But when you have um, a tribe, tribal government, or a nonprofit board, you have many people um, that are, are part of that decision making process. So the due diligence and the discovery around the risk tolerance um, takes takes longer. And you know, Leilani had mentioned that you know she spends a lot of time listening to her clients. That that is really key. Because and and also knowing what questions to ask um, to really get at an understanding of what. Uh, risk tolerance uh, an organization might have is, is so critical. Um, so I think having the patience and having the passion to help these organizations um, to understand what their risk tolerance is, because many times you, you know, a, a particular person may not know how to approach 
assessing their risk tolerance. So knowing the questions to ask and, and talking through, well, what would happen? What would you, what, how would you feel and what would you want to do if the market went down 10%? What if it went down 25%? We saw that during COVID, <laughs> so you know, not that long ago. So, so those are um, that is a it is a very important process, and I think it's um, also what's key to that process is doing a, an original or initial assessment, but then revisiting that on a consistent basis. So, very similar to you know how we might care for a child or care for something. You, that means consistent checking in and evaluating, well, how are we doing? Do we, are we meeting our goals? Do we need to make adjustments? Maybe we need to take a little more risk or maybe we need to take less. So that's um, a, a big piece of the investment process. That's a really interesting overview you provided, Elka. Thank you. Anyone listening today, if you've got a comment, if you've got a question, again, we are talking about Native women who work in the financial services industry, and our number is 1-800-996-2848. I want to go to our third guest on the show today, Brandy Nikolai, Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Strategies at Alaska Permanent Capital Management. Brandy, what you, drew you to the profession? Well, uh, coming out of uh, my undergraduate degree, I actually had um, a human resources position at one of our subsidiaries of a native corporation. And part of that role was benefits administration. And I always, I enjoyed that aspect of it, but I also didn't, I, you know, I only had a preliminary understanding of, you know, how the financial markets work. And I was really interested in it. And the um, advisor that helped on our plan was a woman, and she encouraged me to move into the field. She talked to me about the challenges she faced as a woman in the field, but that really, um, I guess, influenced my decision to go into asset management. But I think more importantly than that, it was just as I was finding my career path, I was really wanting to find a larger purpose for what I would do every day. And one of my passions was I had to figure out my own unique individual way to give back to our Native community. And I noticed that there wasn't many Alaska Native um, finance professionals. And so that kind of really motivated me to pursue the career. And what types of perspectives or, or strengths do you think you bring to your job and, and to the people you work with? Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate in the company that I work for. I've been at Alaska Permanent Capital for 17 years, and the leadership has always been really good at integrating my, my perspective into our investment management process because we do serve a lot of Alaska Native organizations. And I think just having um, a similar cultural perspective as your clients is really helpful as you move through the investment management process. So I think I naturally draw upon cultural values in my position as we design customized investment strategies, you know, things like understanding the importance of listening to the wisdom of elders, thinking about um, incorporating other cultural values such as, you know, cooperation and humility in the process of, you know, working with clients in a collaborative manner to design their own unique strategies. Now, do you work mostly with 
Alaska Native corporations and other Alaskan organizations, or do you work in the lower 48 as well? Our client base is entirely in Alaska. And so we work with Alaska Native organizations. We also work with uh, a lot with municipalities here in the state of Alaska and other governmental entities. And then our firm um, is also a majority owner of a local private wealth firm who serves individuals. Brandy Nikolai. She is Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Strategies, Alaska Permanent Capital Management. We've got some heavy hitters on our show today, folks. Uh, Native women who know a lot about managing money. So I'm thinking anybody that has a question or is just kind of interested in what's going on in the stock market right now, uh, things have been a little shaky over the last six months or so, give us a call. We've got phone lines going here, one 800 996-2848, or if you just like to give one of our guests a shout out, tell them you're interested in what they do and you want to give them a little bit of props for working hard, you can do that too. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. Women have traditionally been underrepresented in the field of finance, but our guests today are working hard to change the narrative. Join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848, or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now in Anchorage is Brandy Nikolai. And Brandy, you know, this conversation today, talking to you, talking to Elka, talking to Leilani, I mean, at the heart of it, what I find so inspiring is that that you folks are, are working with large amounts of money, big sums of money, institutional investors, tribes, Alaska Native corporations, and the responsibility must be huge. And does that weigh on you? Is it a stressful career? It is a stressful career at times. I mean, obviously, when we move through events like COVID, um, you have a lot of um, coaching to work your with your clients through, right? So... I think that as my career has progressed, I have developed um, an understanding and we do have a really sound investment management process as it relates to risk management, that I have conviction in what we do. And so that really helps in terms of alleviating some of that stress. And so for me now at this stage in my career, I think the biggest stress comes from being able to effectively communicate why I believe things are going to work out um, because we have spent the time that's appropriate in the portfolio construction process. So I think that my level of stress earlier in my career was probably more so, you know, concerns about the volatility in the markets and losing client money. But then as my career progressed, that stress kind of changed to a different perspective. And COVID, did that create unique challenges? Because they're in Alaska. I'm thinking you must have clients spread out all over the state? Oh, definitely. I mean, 
you know, we were fortunate in the fact that um, we had just integrated in our office uh, a more, you know, I guess, technological friendly um, work environment. We had moved away from servers. We had already integrated systems like Teams. And so that was helpful as we kind of went into um, the lockdown, but certainly the challenges associated with it from, you know, a leadership perspective were immense, you know, because there were so many unknowns and there, you know, nobody had been there before. And so I think that that um, was definitely, you know, from a asset management perspective and a leadership role, definitely unique um, and a big learning experience, I believe. Mm. We've got a caller who is listening online in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Caller's name is Jay. Hi, Jay. Hey, how are you? Doing great, Jay. Hey, just wanted to say how proud we are of these strong, smart, successful women uh, on the line here. And uh, the question I have is if they have any uh, advice for, for young women as they're going through college and looking to break into the industry. Thanks for that call, Jay. Appreciate it. Uh, Brandy, feel free to respond. Uh, advice or tips for young Native women going to college, looking for careers in finance? I'd say uh, be persistent. Have a lot of grit. Never give up, right? Because there's challenges associated with any career path that you choose. And I think as women, we tend to second-guess ourselves um, we tend to have some, you know, concerns about our level of confidence relative to our working peers or our classmates. And so overcoming some of those natural challenges myself as a woman was um, definitely something that evolved over time. And I think what kind of helped can, me to continue to move on was just, you know, being really gritty. I always tell my children, you have to be gritty in what you do. So you have to keep going, keep moving forward. And I'd give the same advice to young women in every field that they're looking to go into. I really like that question from Jay, and I want to give Leilani a chance to respond as well. Leilani, what advice do you have for young Native women going to school? Hi, Sean. Well, I love that question. And I agree with Randy, being persistent and not giving up. But I think Practically, there's um, a number of opportunities that young Native women or, or women of, of any background could uh, use to get into this industry is to um, look at opportunities within their university and college system to work with their tribal communities. Like Randy said, uh, she was working with her uh, Native corporation and the work that she was doing with an advisor in the financial field helped her get into it. Um, when I was a college student, I interned with Merrill Lynch and then had an opportunity to work with a native-owned investment management firm in San Diego. So you also have to be willing to sometimes move around and go to where the money is. I know Elka talked about being in New York and not having a bathroom, so uh, doing what it takes. But again, there's so many different opportunities. There's so many different um, certifications that you can get. And so there's a lot of opportunities. Even within the financial industry, there's there's marketing, there's human resources. Uh, we, we haven't talked about, you know, the custodial, the, the third-party administrators, actuarials. There's so many different opportunities. And, and I hope that anybody listening would reach out to us, any of us, as a resource. And, and I would love to have, maybe we can get a panel at some of these other uh, Native conferences 
um, and and talk about getting more women and, and a mentorship program for young women. Because to me, it's been disappointing that in the almost 30 years that I've been in the industry, it seems like we have fewer women today than we did when I first started. And I'm not sure why. Thank you, Leilani. Let's go back to the phones. Amber, listening in Farmington, New Mexico online. Amber, you are on Native America Calling. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm Amber Hillis Parker. I'm a licensed CPA here in the state of New Mexico. And I am Navajo. I grew up on the reservation. And I have opened my own firm, accounting firm, um, Hillis Parker & Associates, as well as her CPA. And I just want to thank these ladies for paving the way for women like me. And um, they've all said that having people like us in this industry, accounting or finance, is very hard. And I just want to thank them for the input that they've done. And one of my goals is to help um, generate the new wave of accounting professionals and just wanted to see if there was any um, advice that they have or tips of how to go about um, getting more people involved with accounting or finance um, professions. Okay. Amber, thanks for that call. I'm going to go ahead and let Elka respond to that. Elka, tips or advice for getting folks involved in accounting? Oh, absolutely. But first of all, I want to say you go, Amber. I am so happy to hear that you have your own firm and that you are a CPA. I have, in my experience of trying to find Indian CPAs, I mean, it's very, it, they're just far too few. And so one idea I had, I actually reached out, uh, we do have um, one of my colleagues here at FS Advisors is a CPA. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, I've got tribes that are really needing some assistance, CPA assistance. Is there a um, an organization of uh, Native American CPAs? And um, I came up with nothing. So I don't know if there's a way to maybe work with the national CPA organizations to establish a, um, you know, a group um, specifically for American Indian people, but then through that to maybe do outreach. Um, another organization, um, American Indian business leaders, maybe um, connecting with them because they strive to increase the number of indigenous students in areas of, of business and finance um, and have a mentorship program. So maybe that's a way to get um, younger people um, on the CPA track. Um, again, there's just far too few, and you know, I'm I'm looking across 40 years of of working in the field, and probably could count the number of native CPAs, you know, on on one hand that I know personally. Um, so I'm so happy to hear about Amber and her work, and um, as Leilani mentioned, yeah, reach out to us because it would be great to bring more awareness um, to this issue. Thanks for fielding that question, Elka. At this point, I'd like to switch gears here for a moment and, and take a few minutes now. We're going to hear from our senior producer, Andy Murphy. She's in Chicago this week where the James Beard Foundation announced this year's James Beard Award winners. 
Andy, hello. I understand some history was made this week. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for um, having me on this last couple minutes here. Um, yeah, definitely history was made this week um, or the, uh, at this year's uh, James Beard Awards. And if uh, folks are not familiar with the James Beard Awards, they are, um, I've heard, uh, the Academy Awards of the culinary world. So um, a couple of times uh, during the award ceremony last night, it was mentioned that, you know, just to be not Nominated, your life is changed. Your restaurant is is uh, impacted um, very positively. Um, folks get a lot of attention, a lot of uh, a big boom in business if they're just even nominated. So we had a whole bunch of uh, nominations um, in the beginning. Uh, nominated uh, nominees who were uh, native and. Um, uh, tonight, we saw one winner, one indigenous winner, uh, Sherry Pocknick over from Wampanoag. Uh, her restaurant is called uh, Sly Fox Den, and she won Best Chef of the Northeast. So that is a, that is a really prestigious award there. Best Chef of the Northeast, uh, a Wampanoag chef. Fascinating. Tell us about some of the other indigenous chefs and food sovereignty experts that were there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Justin Pioshi from uh, Navajo Nation, from uh, Bloomfield over in the Farmington area. He was uh, nominated for uh, Best Chef of the Southwest, but he uh, didn't win. It went to uh, somebody in Oklahoma. Um, but uh, it was great to see him there. We, we saw everybody. We, we uh, tried to gather all the natives for one big photo at the um, after-party reception, um, and I can share that with you guys uh, once I once I find it in, in my uh, my camera roll here. Um, uh, Sean Sherman was there. Uh, of course, he is uh, last year's um, his his restaurant, Awami from uh, Minneapolis, won the best restaurant. Um, he announced a, a couple of uh, awards uh, that night, uh, last night. Um, we also had Krista Wapipa over from um, Wapipa's Kitchen in California. She was there at the after party serving uh, some indigenous food to some of the, um, or to all of us, all of us attendees. So they had a really big reception with a bunch of food and a bunch of drinks and just all kinds of like delicious stuff. That was probably the most fun part of the night was the, the uh, after party thing. But, um, you know, we were all just talking about Sherry Pocknick that night. Um, uh, uh, I think all of us women were like, oh, my gosh, we were all in tears when Sherry came on. And, and you know, when Sherry got on stage, she announced that she had cancer and she had just wrapped up her uh, last bout, um, her last uh, uh, cancer treatment and was... Um, you know, just uh, uh, feeling tired, but um, she was really, really happy. Um, and I got to meet her and talk to her for a little bit. And uh, uh, it was just really nice for her to get this award. And even before she got the award, she was like, just be nominated. I feel like I've won. Even if I didn't win, you know, I feel like I've won because it's such a, uh, it, it, it just be nominated provided her restaurant with a big, um, you know, a big boom in uh you know, customers and attention there. Well, that's really, really shocking to hear, but, but it sounds like uh, hopefully the treatment's uh, successful and uh, she'll get a speedy recovery there. So you mentioned earlier, 
Andy, that these James Beard Awards, I mean, they're just so huge, so significant. So in addition to just getting a lot more attention, getting a lot more people into their restaurants, what are some of the other perks of this award? Well, they, um, the, the chefs and the restaurants that are nominated, they are really part of the community. They do, um, you know, a lot of uh, innovative, like, storytelling through their food. And, you know, I think last night there, there were a majority uh, BIPOC winners. Lots of um, uh, Asian folks won for restaurants that have been in the family for generations, um, you know, and... <laughs> Having having this award gives you really just a bigger voice in the community, um, you know, because a restaurant is is not just a restaurant; it's a place for uh, community building. You know, that's what we heard all all night last night. Um, it's a place to uh, you know share stories and share ideas and uh, really support the community food uh, growers and processors in your community. The farmers, the um, you know people who make uh, different food products, um, you know, the, and it's a, a a real you know highlight for all the sustainable you know food practices that are happening in that community. So, uh, winning the award just brings a lot of attention to the whole system that supports and the whole community that supports one uh, one restaurant in the community. I really appreciate you, Andy, calling in and, and giving us all these updates from the James Beard Awards. And it really fits with our show today because we've got these three uh, Native women who are leaders in, in the financial services industry. And one of our guests today, Elka Shinovi, she described what she does as feeding people through finance, feeding investments and things like that. So this has just been a wonderful, wonderful conversation, wonderful show overall. Andy Murphy joining us live from Chicago. We do have to wrap it up now, but before we do, I want to give a big thanks to our guest today, Leilani Wilson-Wakush, Elka Shinovi, and Brandy Nickel for an enlightening discussion on challenges and opportunities facing Native women in the financial services industry. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow, same place, same time, for another thought-provoking conversation on Indigenous issues and topics. Until then, stay safe and have a great rest of your day. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. Lowrider enthusiasts can see some of the baddest cars, trucks, motorcycles, bikes, and everything on wheels, plus live music, all at the Artemis Lowrider Super Show, taking place in downtown Albuquerque at the Albuquerque Convention Center Sunday, June 4th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.